Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life. Hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesqual, and Harry McDonough. Today's episode is sponsored by Hyperskill. Hyperskill is a learning and training platform that enables people from all over the world to learn new tech skills. If you're looking to learn new tech skills, this is a platform to choose. You can find out more about them on hyperskill.org. Today we are joined by Dr. Sven Jungman from Halitus. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Innovation Conversation. Today we are joined by Sven uh, Youngman, who's the CEO of Halitus. He's also a doctor, but we're not going to say he's a doctor. Uh, Sven, we're very much excited to have you here. Me and Harry were actually talking about your company. So tell us all about Halitus, what you do. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to have you, uh, and I'm looking forward to this. I am, uh, yeah, I'm Sven, as you said, medical doctor originally. Uh, left the bedside quite a while ago uh, to go into innovation stuff. Um, I also studied some things on the side, which I think set the precedence for that. So public health, public policy, entrepreneurship. Um, then worked, well, I sort of studied along this whole journey. It was not sequential. Um, but anyway, worked in the, in the hospital for a while, mostly in, uh, in internal medicine, which included lung diseases, cancer care, and emergency medicine, it was nice, but I felt like there's, you know, too much uh, sand in the gears uh, everywhere. And we're treating things that we shouldn't be treating because they could have been preventable. And we're doing it in the most ineffective way possible quite often. So I got frustrated, honestly, and also felt it's not so creative mm-hmm. uh, quite often. And then ended up in, in digital health innovation for quite a few years, mostly in what's called like corporate venture building. So yeah. uh, established organizations trying to build new companies. At that time, I was convinced that this is the right thing to do simply because the entry barriers and the scaling, late rate limiting steps to scaling are so massive in this highly regulated complex market, you know, where the payers are different people than the beneficiaries and all of this market inefficiencies, that it, it makes sense to team up with the big players. And and I think that was a smart logic, but in practice, it often fails because the price you pay is um, a lot of politics and you know slow decision making processes and all of this. Um, so I left after uh, many years and then uh, ended up uh, co-founding my current company, which is called Halitos. And here, uh, the basic idea is that um, there is a lot of data in the air and specifically also in the breath that we're currently largely ignoring. Right? If you look at what dogs can smell and how they run around with their noses exploring the world, there's a whole invisible world that is rich of information of data. And um, it's abundantly clear in, in science that uh, with each breath, we exhale more than a thousand unique different molecules that have something to say about what's going on in your body. And many of them have been linked to certain diseases. Uh, there are big lab studies um, that uh, give a lot of insights on, you know, this is elevated or depressed in certain cancers in autoimmune diseases and infectious diseases and so on, not just related to the lung, but even in your body. And nobody really until, well, now or still not, um, has found a meaningful way to to take sort of this ability to analyze these things out of the lab into everyday care. And it's a bit more complicated than other things for a variety of reasons. But we are in the race uh, to uh, to solve this, hopefully. Um, And and that's, that's, that's largely what we do. So teaching machines to smell, in order to find diseases faster and figure out a treatment on a working world and so on. It's quite interesting because yeah. you mentioned um, 
you know, the way that Western medicine works. But if you actually go to a Chinese, uh, if, if you do traditional Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. they actually smell your breath, which yeah. is a bit awkward position. Like, yeah. I don't know, Harry, if you ever had this experience, but there, there's a, a Chinese doctor in Chinatown and you go there the, and he kind of measures your pulse, but then he also asks to smell your breath, which is quite bizarre. But then it does make sense, obviously, when you're talking mm-hmm. about how much more information you can actually gather from mm-hmm. your breath. Um how, how are you finding this, like, to actually build something like that? Because it, it must be hard to analyze just from a single, from our, uh, I guess, your, how, should I, how should I call this? From from our breath, how easy is it to actually analyze all the molecules that come up? Because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. there's okay. a lot of mixtures, right? So you're making uh, two brilliant points. I think, first of all, it's, it's not just Western uh, or Chinese medicine. Actually, Galen, back in the days, like one of the earlier doctors, uh, uh, also used to do that you know there's uh, they even used to taste things so diabetes mellitus yes and actually it's the it's the, the sort of this the, the sweet uh, urine and so on um and that must be an awkward position to be to actually taste everyone's urine to see if it's sweet or not there's a typical joke in uh in 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 for like the very first year graduate uh, medical students probably even like the first week where a lecturer goes around and then he has this like urine sample thing with yeah. Well, of course, it's apple juice, right? But he basically runs around and then he says, "Well, you need two things as a doctor fundamentally to be to be successful. Number one is um, you need to have a very good sense of observation, like observation skills, mm-hmm. and secondly, um, you need to have a, a low fresh or high threshold for things that are disgusting, right? And yeah. be highly tolerant to disgusting stuff. And then, I'll show you what I mean. And he basically dips his finger in, in, into that urine sample thing mm-hmm. and then starts to lick the finger, and he sort of Ooh. gives it around to people." <laughs> And then he said, okay, great, well done. So you've proven that you're able to overcome your, uh, your sort of your sense of disgust or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the observation skill was lacking because you should have seen that I dipped this finger in, but I was licking this one, right? And forget <laughs> it. One of the, uh, the inaugural uh, rituals for, um, for medical students. Anyway, so um, this has all been part of, of medicine. Um, and uh, I think what happened is that we started to technologize a lot of these things, right? The stethoscope and so on. And the one thing that we haven't really technologized until today is the sense of, sm- of, of uh, smell. And yeah. that kind of, for me, means this is part of the reason why we ended up not doing it so much anymore, because simply it's really hard to reproduce it, to objectify it. Um, our, when, when people talk about smell and want to describe things it's hugely metaphorical right how we, we talk about i don't know it's it's a bit of an earthy taste it's a bit like a pear if you listen to wine connoisseurs and all of this it's always by analogy and metaphor right um so we don't like that in medicine we like to be kind of increasingly precise we have metaphors so, so I'm kind of losing it yeah. um Nevertheless, you know, there are, you will find articles on people smelling Parkinson's disease and this being researched more and more. Uh, and, and so I think, yeah, you, you see doctors, you know, smelling paper that patients bring to see if it's really true that they stopped smoking uh, and, and things like that and, and looking for subtle signs. Um, to your point on how difficult it is, it's very difficult for a lot of reasons. So first of all, the things we are trying to find, these are particles per billion. So it's really trying to find the needle in the haystack. For one, the second thing is you don't have this, there's one biomarker that is associated with like one disease, right? So typically you have what's called multiplex to look at several ones um, to get closer to the truth um, and then look at how they relate to each other and so on. And and a lot of it is frankly really not yet understood. 
there are some markers that in the cancer they can be elevated because they are an end product of that cancer's metabolism. It could also be that the same cancer or another cancer uses this molecule for the metabolism, so then it might be depressed. And then there are some molecules there in the blood, and then and then they get um, uh, they land in the lung where you expire them. But some of these molecules are very blood soluble, so they don't really like to leave the blood so fast as others. And then if you lie down, if you're in mm -hmm. supine, then there's more blood in your lung area, especially in the upper part. So there is a bigger surface to exchange that molecule, which means the molecules that are super blood bound, they suddenly come up in higher concentrations simply because the surface of exchange is higher. And then you might think if you don't know that, oh, well, there's an increase all of a sudden, but there's not. It's just that you know, more came out. Where's your baseline? How do you get it? Because this is a brand new concept. So how, how, where's yeah. the baseline? How, how do you determine you know, what's what? Excellent question. So a couple of tricks. Um, one is you have to standardize the exam. People should be sitting or if not, then you have to write it down. Uh, don't eat and drink before. Like a lot of these things. There are different protocols. It's not yet standardized. This is all a very nascent kind of field. So uh, I think uh, a lot of work needs to be done there. People are doing that work, but we're not quite there yet. Um, the other part is we believe um, knowing how to put these things into uh, into relation to one another is really important. And sort of if you look at CO2, uh, that's a super key thing because it has a very typical curve and it's a bit different, different diseases also. but just from that, you can know basically where am I in this exhalation process. And we are combining lasers together with like a, a very old-fashioned classical lung function test. But that tells us, okay, now somebody's breathing through it. Now not, this is the amount of air that went through it. So we can also compare that with the environmental air to, to rule out contaminations uh, and so on. Um, and, and that's kind of something you have to do. And, and the super exciting thing is, Looking at a person's uh, changes over time. So rather than having an absolute cutoff, like you have with blood samples, just look at the relative developments and benchmark a person against themselves in the past. Um, it's something that can be very helpful in certain use cases. And how quick is it to actually do all these tests and to, to get that mm -hmm. measure? Because if you, if you want to do comparisons, then I'm assuming you should be yeah. really quick to get that analysis. Right? You're absolutely right. Um, so it, it depends on the technology, right? The, the ones that I mentioned that are in the lab, they they can take up to many days. So that's too slow. And that's the problem, frankly. Um, but they are really good for research purposes because... It's, it's basically, it's a technology called mass spectrometry, typically with gas chromatography together, like big devices, you put them in a lab, um, and then samples are being sent in, then they get analyzed after you prepared the sample, which can take days. Um, and that's great because it shows you everything that's in the breath, right? Mm -hmm. And there are other technologies. So we're going for like lasers, optical. There are others called electrochemical, which have their own problem, but people are starting to find solutions for it. And they can be really fast. So there we're talking minutes. Interesting. Or so less. so the, the, the Halitus is developing, developing a technology to analyze your, your breath and the changes in molecules that yeah. you know transpire from your expiration. Correct me if I'm wrong on all this terminology. And then based on that, you can you, based on that, you create several baselines for what's healthy, what's not healthy, what are the markers for some of the different types of cancers or, well, just halitosis, really, uh, and stuff like that so we can emulate what's what. Um, and this is all done by lasers, which then measure the differences in the molecules 
Is that is that correct? Or so our our approach um, uh, is. I don't want to make it too complicated. If you want me to, I can do it. But I, just, I mean, just at a, a high level, it's it's called tunable diode laser absorption spectroscopy. So okay. you have a tube. It's highly reflective. Mm-hmm. And then on one end, there's a laser. And the laser shoots through it and gets reflected hundreds of times. Ends up ending up in uh, a photo detect like a sensor. Mm-hmm. And at a very narrow, so by definition, lasers are very <laughs> narrow on their wavelength. Um, and then hits the other side. If if there's nothing in between, the laser looks pretty much the same with sort of a little bit of uh, less power because of uh, the reflection. So every time it reflects, it gets absorbed a little bit, right? Even if you have like a highly reflective, so it's never 100%. Um, and then uh, when when our molecule of interest, so basically you have like a wall of laser. It's like in, if you're in a, um, Mission Impossible movie or uh, Ocean's Eleven, and they try to yeah. break into that, you know, super safe thing. They're always lasers, mm-hmm. and so on. And 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 we're basically building a laser wall that makes it really hard for the molecule to do that Mission Impossible move and get through it without being hit by the laser. And then the laser gets absorbed partially on a very specific part of the what's called the absorption spectrum. So people people measured all sorts of molecules and how they absorb lasers differently. So there you have databases. And then we choose a very specific line. Kind of feels like you're scanning for a fingerprint, right? And then yeah. it's it's this one part. It's very idiosyncratic for that specific molecule. And if that absorption happens in that specific part, we can be fairly certain that this was just this molecule. And the more it gets absorbed, the more you have of these molecules. You can even estimate concentrations. So is it is it the same way that we know what the components of a specific star are, for example? Because when when we get that light reflected onto Earth kind of splits up the light and then depending on the, the variance in color you can determine which uh, molecules which elements are actually composed uh, the planet the planet is made of so is it similar to that yeah or? i think there are some similarities in principle um uh, partially um i don't want to lean myself too far out of that window because it's <laughs> i'm not too much in the in the space but it's it's so and I know Harry is like aching to ask you a question in terms of like funding and and, and oh, yeah. grants and all that. So Harry, do you want to do you want to ask a question regarding this? Because it's quite interesting. You can go for it. Go for it. I think what's what's interesting for me is um are you like the company is very it's very it's absolutely amazing what you're doing. Did you apply for any funds or any grants? No. How do you get started? Because I imagine all this equipment can be very expensive. Exactly. So um, I just. Published an article around this, um, and uh, and <laughs> I mean, you know, we're among ourselves. Uh, the, the the thing is, it's it's super painful. Um, I thought when I started, I can easily just fundraise a couple of million, uh, get to like some key evidence, inflection points, and then fundraise with a nice valuation jump for the next round. Probably in 2021 or 2020, something like this, this would have been possible. Uh, frankly, I struggled massively. So uh, most of the VCs, especially the European ones, um, they are not really VCs. They're more like bankers. Um, and often, especially, I mean, I learned to not look at the web page copy, but just to look at where did they invest. Yeah. Because if you hear the copy, oh, we're back the brave, we want to shape the future, blah, 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 blah. If you look at their investment portfolio, it's, the the fifth tinder copycat and another home grocery delivery service or i don't know they want to do like climate change and then all they do is carbon trading platforms and all of this right so that i mean you often have that and i stopped talking 
uh, to, to people when I don't see evidence that they're really committed to putting money to where their web page copy is. Yeah. Um, and and then often the question I get is, so when are your first customers? And then my answer is probably four years, you know, with all the regulatory approval, clinical trial and all this. And oh well, no, no, sorry, that's 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 too slow for us. It doesn't it doesn't work with our mm-hmm. uh, LP funding structure you know, and all of this. And uh, also, it's too risky for us and so on. And then they, they, like a typical thing that they would say is, "Why don't you come back when you have first customers?" And then I'm like, "Bro, because when I have first customers, I'm not talking to a pre-seed seed Series A investor. Yeah, we'll I'm actually busy talking to uh, the M&A advisory firm and then to my real estate agent for my beach house uh, <laughs> holiday home. Like, what the yeah. what the heck is wrong with you? Um, and they don't understand it. But what they, what they're trying to get at, and often these are people that come from like an e-commerce world where you don't have like these R and D cycles. They don't they don't like R and D. They just like commercialization and and hockey sticks. And so um, they think that. There's a lot of surrogative data in the fact that you have customers because if you don't know how to do diligence that, yeah. let your customer do it. By definition, they are experts. Otherwise, they wouldn't buy a device like that. Mm-hmm. If they don't send it back, it means it kind of works and you have the, the pricing sorted and la, 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 la. Right? But that, that works in other worlds. It doesn't work in a, in a deep tech R&D happy business yeah. case. Um, so that, that was a massive challenge. And so what I did is... Uh, what I ended up calling the Tarzan mode, which is you jump from from one uh, convertible loan Mm -hmm. to the next. And sometimes it's like, okay, there's three weeks runway left. Mm -hmm. I hope something good happens. And then suddenly you get that phone call and somebody writes your check. Okay, cool. So here is uh, to another three months and and you just keep doing that. And then slowly sort of improving uh, the development of the company and also creating a league of very good investors who give you more credibility, you can give you help and so on and so on and so on, um, which is really helpful. Um, but one thing that I learned is it, it really helps to try and actually not spend that money right away, but to accumulate it because then you become eligible for many of the grants, which yeah. require you to make, to have some sort of liquidity and to make some advanced payments and then get reimbursed afterwards. And if you don't have that because you just kept investing it right away in some of your hardware, mm-hmm. then you can't leverage it with non-dilutive funding. Right? So that, that's one thing and uh, stop me if I'm rambling on too much. But no, no, I, I was I was wondering something because obviously I, I can see the advantages of the, the technology, but I'm curious on one thing: would the, this technology potentially give you more more insights and quicker insights into what's happening in the human body than the current analysis that you have, you know, in the top end hospital? Or would it be cheaper than a top-end hospital to actually detect all these things? Or could you, for example, prevent changes in your, like your precancerous cells that oftentimes yeah. are neglected? So, is there something that that you could detect potentially? So, um, a couple of things, and also it depends a bit on uh, the type of technology that you have to match to the problem you're trying. To but I don't want to make it too complicated. But maybe at a high level. If if you go to a doctor these days and you have certain symptoms, it's actually quite limited what they can do right in that direct interaction, right? So they can do a physical... Literally just type in a computer, at least in the UK. That's all they do. Type in a computer and then 10 minutes in and yeah. you're... <laughs> and, and, and if you got somebody who really cares about these things, then they would do a physical exam. They would uh, you know, do an auscultation and so on. 
then you can get to an EKG. Mm -hmm. A lot of this can also be done. Yeah. But then the next step often is probably an X-ray, of mm -hmm. course, blood samples, a CT scan, and so on. And now, if you think about um, if you think about lung cancer, uh, there's pretty solid evidence. And of course, people will challenge that. But if you can look at the the U.S. Preventative Task Force studies and so on, uh, or CDC, that say that probably somewhere around 17% of the deaths caused by lung cancer can be completely avoided yeah. um, if you would screen them properly, if you could screen people properly. It's quite a high so figure. I, I think it's quite a lot, right? Because that also, I mean, that, that's a hard cutoff. That also means that maybe other people will still die of it, but have a better journey, which is less painful and so on. Um, and, and screening is really difficult because you have a, just finding a, something early doesn't help if you don't have the right infrastructure to do something with it. Yeah. So if all was perfect, probably you could even go further than that. Um, anyway, so in the US, they say if you are a high risk patient, which means you have a certain age and you smoke quite a lot, mm -hmm. uh, to simplify things a little bit, um, then you should be getting a CT screening. And out of these people, there are different studies, somewhere around 6 to 16% of the people who are really doing that, which for me is, is a screening failure. Right in uh, in Europe, we're not doing it um, in many countries because we're afraid of false positives. There are also false negatives. Mm -hmm. um, you radiate people with that CT scan; it's costly, and then there's a lot of follow up that needs to be done, and so on. So it's not a great solution. Mm -hmm. And our hypothesis is that what if you could go to your GP, or maybe you go to your lung doctor because you have a COPD because you've been smoking so much. Yeah. And then all you need to do is blow into a device, which if you have COPD, you will anyway be doing regularly because you need to have your lung function test. Mm -hmm. And we screen your four markers and then we flash it up and we say, look, it's actually quite likely that there's something that needs more checkup. Please go through a CT scan. And then if the CT scan is ambiguous, we have another source of data, which is our breath test, plus mm -hmm. that ambiguous data set, which re reduces the ambiguity yeah. towards this might really be something and then we think we could have a screening uptake of like easily 50 60 or maybe 70 percent because people driven out of symptoms anyway will end up having to do lung function tests potentially just thinking about the how to make this very commercial you can actually reduce costs for insurance companies let's think about the u.s model now um, you can actually reduce all the costs because instead of them automatically sending people who are smokers to the very costly exams that take a lot of hospitals mm -hmm. and a lot of expenses yeah. They could just say, you know what, just do a breath test. Yeah. Let's see if you qualify, and then we'll continue doing the testing. Exactly. Um, and the same thing, I'm, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, could you also do the same thing for like um, uh, colonoscopies and, and stuff like that? Because it's, I think you can also detect it on breath. What's, what's that bacteria that you can detect on your breath? I uh, forgot. Helicobacter um, pylori. H. pylori, exactly, yeah. Because you can actually, there's two ways of detecting it. Either someone puts a tube in a place you don't want the tube to go, <laughs> or they can yeah. do a breath test. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, I don't think we will be replacing everything that there is, but we can complement, and sometimes we can fill in gaps that are not there. And then, of course, there will be situations that we can replace. But I believe a lot of entrepreneurs in the diagnostic space they they feel pressure to sell you the next silver bullet, the one thing that's you know making a lot of other things obsolete. And I think in most cases that's simply not what's going to happen. It's going to be. Um, creating more data. Like if you're in a dark room and there's somebody with a flashlight pointing in one direction, there's another person in the room, you know, flashing another way. And then by putting that image together in an intelligent way, that's when you end up getting the full image. And then you also have to be smart about what do you do in what sequence, right? 
So the CT scan, for example, is something I'd, I'd rather do a bit later when I when my pretest likelihood is, is pretty high because I've done enough other exams because it's radiating, so it can cause cancer uh, because it's expensive and, and so on and so on. So how, how are you finding, like, obviously, I, you told me it's hard to get to these investors. What about, like, public uh, grants or universities? Yeah. Is it So they, I'm, I'm really annoyed, frankly, with our, I'm, I'm now talking about Germany plus Europe uh, with our funding scene because they, they make it so complicated. And it, when you first look at it, it's like, oh, great, there's a million here, a million there, da, 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 da. But then you look at it and they say, well, but it's only for things where, you really need that money, so you have to prove that other without it you can't make it. But then also it has to show like a positive business case in two years. Uh, and you're like, bro, I'm doing medtech. Like again, this is going to be four years. You don't want to fund that or what? And then you say, well, now we can find a way, but then you need to uh, hire a marketing person to make it credible that you're already like sort of going towards commercial. I'm like. Why do I need a marketing person? So I start we need to lie to get the grant or something like that. Yeah, and, and, and so that's frustrating. And then they tell you, but okay, but you have to have a minimum amount of this and this money. In Germany, if you have convertible loans, that counts as that, although you don't have to pay them back. So then you're a company at risk and then some of the things you can't get. And then you have to pay in advance and then you get it back like half a year later. So you don't have so much cash, you know, it really helps. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's a big overhead. There are agencies that make big business out of helping companies to get the grants and then to manage the bureaucracy through it and so right. on. So kind of, I, I feel like I get it. You, you, it's public money. You don't want it to go to waste. But frankly, you end up helping a smaller proportion of startups that might still need it, but not quite so much. And, and you're making me bend backwards and sideways in order to, to get like a couple hundred K. So then it, it always goes to waste because that's that's one of the... the... I guess the, the things that most people don't realize is that a lot of startups fail, but yep. then as they fail, they also learn some lessons and they might not apply them straight away, but then you keep on building on it. And it's the same thing. It's the basis of any scientific research, really. Yeah. You keep on failing and seeing, okay, this doesn't work. Let's try something else. This doesn't work. Let's try something else. So yeah. it's, it's part of life. And actually, it's, yeah. you should fail. That's how you learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and building on that. So the other part is they, they typically, especially the European ones, they always want you to build consortia. So I have a clear problem I want to solve. Oh, no, no, no. I have to find two other SMEs and then one academia and this. And then they can't all be in Northern Europe, but there has to be somebody from somewhere else. And then and then you, you marry up with people where you realize quite quickly, actually, this makes zero sense. Like, it doesn't make sense from a business perspective. It doesn't make personally sense in all of this. And plus, I mean, there is pretty strong evidence that it makes sense to create clusters of excellence where people are really yeah. close together. That's what Boston is. That's what Silicon Valley is. It's what the, the, the Silicon Fen around Cambridge is and so on. And, and Europe, out of ideological reasons, which I like, I subscribe to that idea that we will collaborate. But like, we're, we're diluting things so much that this experience also from learning from failure mm-hmm. then gets diluted everywhere. And you don't create a critical center of excellence. And they could create one for healthcare in city A. They could create one for something else somewhere else. But I think aggregating these learnings would be helpful. And the current funding scene is is pushing against that, I think. Uh, What about finding funding from from abroad? Um, um, Yeah. For example, from the UK or from the US? How how does that? uh, I've I've been doing that quite a lot. Um, The... uh, 
Americans are so much better. You know, here there's always this, oh, the Americans, they're so such risk takers. We don't have this risk taking. Well, yes, but also they're very intelligent risk takers, right? If I talk, as I said, if I talk to a, a German investor, typically the answer is, oh, do you have customers already? And then if no, it's already, it's a bad sign, yeah. right? If you talk to an American, and I've had that a few times, you have a fund manager, whatever, and then one or two PhDs in physics and in chemistry. And then there's Jack, who's been working with the FDA for 20 years. And they also give you some advice as, as you go through this pitch. And like, wow, I just, how, much, how much do you charge for this, right? And then, and then they ask you, for example, okay, cool. So you're a pre-seed diagnostics company. Would it be possible that you supply us with 20 raw data sets of different people blowing through it? Mm -hmm. And then we would like to see what your data evolves into after each data processing step so that we have an idea of your of your data quality journey. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I've talked to hundreds, literally hundreds of European investors. I got this question zero times. Mm -hmm. If I think about it, this is probably the only relevant question at this stage, aside from, you know, what's your team and all of this. Yep. That's also what they ask. And you need somebody who's intelligent enough to understand that this is the relevant question. And then you need people who are educated enough to make sense of the answer that you're sending them. Yeah, I haven't seen that in Europe. But really, frankly, I haven't seen it. But it's it's a bit now by comparison. It's a bit like walking into someone's kitchen, and you find out they're a good chef or not because they have the right utensils, they have the right spices, and you think, you know what? They're probably doing something right, even though they haven't started. It's the same thing. With yeah. You. If you're gathering all the data and it's re yeah. very relevant data, yes, we yeah. understand that's part of the process. But these are good indicators that you're starting off right. You're probably going to end up in a nice place, right? Instead of just expecting you to arrive with all the solutions saying, hey, yeah. I have a product and I have customers. I just need more money to expand. Well, yeah. how do you get there? It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's a chicken and egg problem over and over again. And, and then I, I talk to British investors and they often don't like to invest in Europe because uh, you know, of the, uh, the tax schemes and so on. Yeah. And then I talked to one who was pretty, pretty big and, and he listened to this. Yeah. And then there was something that didn't make sense to him and I was trying to get at it. And then throughout the conversation, I realized what he was actually asking, he wasn't quite so explicit, he was British about it. Yeah. But what he was actually asking was, if you're really so cool, why are you in Germany? <laughs> <laughs> that was fundamentally the, the, the thing that he didn't understand. Well, you could have said that we have better sausages and the, the beer tastes nicer. Well, I mean, my answer was like, look, BMW, Porsche, like uh, BASF, uh, um, BioNTech, like we, we we have a history of like big tech stuff, right? Yeah, and the innovation as well. Stuff. I mean, yeah, all these stuff. Yeah. No, but I, I know I know I get him because these are all the big players, and BioNTech would not have made it without Pfizer yeah. and a few other people. Um, and BioNTech also started to look into going to the UK now because everything's moving too slow. Interesting. So. It's, it's it's something like. We, you know, we talk with a lot of people from, from all over the world, and it's always interesting to see how certain areas work in certain regions, and then the other way around. So no one, some people in the UK say, oh, we should go to, to Europe because they're more likely to fund this. And then it's funny seeing someone in Germany saying, actually, I should move to the UK or I should move to the US yeah. because I'm much more likely to get funding there because people are more open and they actually understand yeah. the, the steps required for this. It's quite interesting going there. I mean... But, the grass is always green on the other side, they say, right? And I'm sure that's true partially. However, um, I cannot fully announce all the details yet, but we are very intensively looking into uh, headquartering in the US. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, so many things are so much easier. You know, suddenly I have a seven-figure funding soft committed. 
uh, on top where here it's really struggling. Um, it makes sense because uh, we, when you look at the number of uh, patents that are registered every year, the highest number is still in the US, right? And there's a reason why it keeps on being in the US because they have this openness to innovation, openness to, to creation, and also a, a willingness to accept risk as part of the journey, right? And to a certain extent, you also find that in gay people, yes, they understand there is risk. They're not particularly, you know, uh, happy about risk, but it's part of the process. Whereas in other countries, you know, and I'm from Portugal, I find this a lot, is that people are like, oh, if it's not a done deal, then it's not going to happen. Well, but hold on. Until you get to that stage, you need to try a lot of things. It doesn't just, it's like learning how to walk. You don't just get up and start walking. You're going to fall a couple of times, right? It's part of the journey. Uh, but yeah, people just don't get that. There, there's a beautiful saying uh, which pops up all the time, all of a sudden in my life, but that's sometimes how it is, right? Which is the work you do works more on you than you work on it. Mm-hmm. And I think proper investors understand that a lot. Um, and uh, like sometimes I have some investors, they like to start with small tickets after, of course, having not a proper due diligence, but primarily to figure out, to play the HR game, right? To figure out, okay, how is this entrepreneur evolving? How is he um how is he or she uh, uh adjusting learning uh communicating pivoting etc um and that um and that then defines how much money they want to put in for real afterwards i was thinking about a company that was on the news for quite quite you know really really bad reasons uh but because a us based company actually managed to go go that far which is uh, tyrannos right um is it the one that was doing tyrannos, yeah so she got quite far and then she managed to even co- like make it commercial at a certain extent, get a lot of contracts, a lot of companies just on this idea that it could work, but in reality never did. But it just goes to show how willing are the companies in the US, A, to, to believe in yeah. something that is still very, you know, yeah. it out, yeah, yeah, but yeah. also for all the investors to back these new ideas. Because in Europe, people will never, until they see the actual machine yeah. working, they're like, yeah, I'm not going to invest in this. Yeah, I mean, Farinas is a very unfortunate case, which is a right out fraud. Um, and uh, if you look at the people who invested, they were probably, many of them were quite prominent. Donald Rumsfeld, I think, was part of it. Um, and didn't know anything about healthcare. Yeah. And the medical community started to, to raise concerns, you know, things got a bit loud. And for better or for worse, I think it, it started to ring a lot of alarm bells. We often get compared with Farinas. Right, so I even end up sometimes pitching myself as I'm Theranos for the breath, uh, <laughs> just to get it out of the way. Right, yeah. um, we have Roche as an investor via the Rocks uh, innovation vehicle, and and so that adds credibility because Roche passed on Theranos back in the day, right? Um, yeah. But uh, but th- that's this is it is an issue at the same time, right? So part of it is good; people have a bit more of a mature view. Part of it is bad because a lot of people just generally say, okay, I don't understand it and I'm just going to... I'm thinking about, you know, I, I don't invest in healthcare. I, I only know so much about it. But I, I'm thinking in healthcare, you have so many cases where like, you're actually getting really really good results out of things that you think they'll be developed for something else, but, but then they start working. Let's think about the most common of these ones. Uh, Viagra, for example. It was not meant to be used as an erection drug, quite on the contrary. But it was producing such good results that I decided to take it to market for something completely different than what the original research was for. But then if you think about it, what made the difference was they were willing to invest in this. The same can be said for the drug um, 
what's it called, the weight loss medication now that everyone's taking it yeah. losing big, right? It was made for diabetes, but actually it does help losing weight. Um, so I don't know. It's like, why is Europe missing on this? Like people should actually change their mindset and say, let's, let's invest, let's make a couple of risks. I mean, the, the weight loss at least uh, is, is uh, Novo Nordisk, so it's Danish. Um, I think there's oh, a lot I thought it was American. I don't know why. <laughs> no, no, I mean, there are no American companies also jumping in on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think so. There are accidental discoveries, which, which are great. Mm-hmm. I think, by and large, what I would like to see is that that we work from first principles. And I'm also on the investor side. I didn't mention that, right? But uh, so I'm on the advisory board of Speed Invest, which is a really cool big fund. They don't do hardware, but they do a lot of great things in the software space. Um, and I have also invested a little bit myself. And so what you often get is people start with a big idea and they have a beautiful PowerPoint. And maybe even especially in the healthcare um, in the healthcare space, they um, often people come, if they're not native healthcare like myself, they come because they have seen something in their family or with themselves, some frustration with the healthcare system and they want to solve that, which is really laudable in a and I welcome everybody to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad if they bring their skills because healthcare, I think, needs more people from the outside to come in. But they often don't dive deep enough into the science part of it and the evidence and, and the complexities of reimbursement, for example. And so, on. so I think this whole principle of going from first principles, which means I have to have a very good reasoning before I start why this would work, mm-hmm. is super important. And you see too many people who say, we're just going to put all that data together and then machine learning, you know, um, or, you know, they have this big vision where everybody agrees that there's a problem and that there should be a solution, but the path in between is the big challenge. And, and that's often not thought out enough. Um, so I love accidental discoveries, but I would also like to see more people to really start with like couple things. And by the way, the, the weight loss things are also used for diabetes, right? So it's easy. It's, it's, that's actually yeah. why, why there's a surge. I, you know, I found that, Quite recently, there is this this lady in the US. I don't remember the name of the company, but her story kind of goes like this: She had a baby. She was buying baby formula in in the US for her baby, and then she realized that actually the key components are mostly sugar. And she 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 thought to herself, surely there's something more nutritious I can give to my baby apart from sugar. So she decided to create the Better Baby Formula Company, and it's now a billion you know dollar worth company because she just created Better Baby Formula, like very basic things. But that's that's an example of what you were saying, which is people not from healthcare. She has no background whatsoever in healthcare. She just decided, okay, how yeah. can I make this better? That's it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, Mark Cuban, I don't know if you've seen what he's doing with um, his uh, drugs companies, where instead of, um, he's just manufacturing, so he's buying, or not buying, he's um, using formulas that are in the open market. He's creating the products himself, so he's manufacturing all the drugs himself, and then it's he sells it at cost. So if you need to buy, I'm going to say aspirin, but no one actually needs to buy yeah. aspirin unless heart conditions. But um, you can buy aspirin instead of buying, you know, the premium one for ten dollars. You buy it for three dollars, and that's the cost plus the shipment. So you know, people are trying to change the way it gets done, and you know, best of luck to them on all that. But yeah, it's an interesting time to be alive, I guess. Absolutely. This is going to go mad, right? So I'm focused on uh, on diagnostics right now, which which I think is an underinvested area and where we can really harness a lot. Most people die of preventable diseases because the disease gets detected too late or because we find out too late that the treatment isn't working properly, right? Yeah. But um, the next thing, I think when I'm done with this, when it's hopefully sold at some point, 
uh, I want to go into bioengineering, you know, like reprogramming cells and letting them do crazy stuff. There's there's so much that I think is going to go on in the next 10 years, which I don't know, can't probably even imagine. Especially, especially with AI. I mean, I was, I was about to ask you how much AI do you actually implement in, in, your, in your activities? Because I'm assuming there's a lot of stuff you can automate. So how much, how complex is it? And yeah. how much do you actually implement in your day to day? So you need it on a couple of fronts. Uh, you need it for uh, signal optimization, signal to noise. Right? Mm-hmm. Nothing that gets you super excited, I guess, but like the typical stuff. Um, the thing is, as I mentioned, we we have two things. We have to multiplex. So we have to look at several biomarkers at the same time. And we have a pretty, um, what's called high resolution time series. So mm-hmm. normally when you take a blood sample, you take that moment. And then you analyze that. Yeah. Um, for us, we really do like, we want to do a 10 hertz acquisition rate. So 10 cuts per second and get end-to-end breath print. Um, if, you, if you look at the continuous glucose measurement devices, the ones yeah. that people are wearing here. So what happened here is in the beginning, a lot of the big tech companies in, in, in diagnostics, they laughed at it. They said, this is completely useless because it will not be as precise as your finger prick, capillary blood, or the the blood from the vein, and so you know, will not fly. Yeah. What they didn't understand is the power continuous data. If you have a high time series, you don't need to have the same kind of accuracy because you have a much more density coverage of the whole day. Plus, you can look at trends. So suddenly, you see that the person has good blood sugar throughout the day with the diabetes but there's always a dip at night and you're not measuring because they're not measuring it um or you can suddenly learn that if there are certain patterns in how your blood sugar evolves after you ate something or something like this you have a higher risk for diabetes and so on right it even motivated people to lose weight so now you have these lifestyle apps um so example is one of them right i don't know if it's yeah. a big thing in, in germany as well but in- you yeah. put the, the, the glucose monitor and then it tells you exactly what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat because it measures your blood spike in different uh, nutrient, like different food items. So if you eat pizza, it goes up. If you eat uh, steak, it goes down or something yeah. like that. So yeah. You measure yeah. Um, to the machine learning question. Machine learning question. Oh, and, and that's, where, where, that's where it gets interesting. So now, um, what is it? Five or six years ago. I uh, was looking at a tool, it turned out that it's not working, but we didn't know at that point, that claimed that by putting something in the ear, it can continuously measure the blood pressure. And my first reaction was, I need to figure out if doctors want that. So I asked. And what most of them said, dude, I, I don't know what to do with that. It's too much data. You know, I'm, I'm used, my guidelines tell me, measure in the morning, middle of the day, evening. The person has to be sitting. Do it all standardized, measurement on the same arm, et cetera, no coffee, blah, blah, blah. And then I know how to adjust the treatment. Yeah. If you suddenly change that because you're overloading with data, I cannot do an evidence-based decision. So the guidelines have to be adjusted first. Um, and that takes forever. But if you could have AI to make sense of these things and predict certain things and saying, hey, look, it seems like because of this and this pattern, it should be explainable, frankly, but it could detect, you know, associations of certain complications down the road with certain spikes or whatever. And then suddenly you can use that. Now with the breath, you have this layer, plus you have to multiplex different lab values, right? One is elevated and one is a bit lower. 
this one was lower before and they don't i don't even have evidence for what i'm just saying right but that's our thinking of what we need to do and that's something where clearly the human mind is going to be overloaded because these things are non-linear um might be different from person to person we go back to this baseline absolute versus personal and so on where ai is just probably going to be so much superior but then it'd probably be easier to ask people to do these tests because they won't be invasive mm -hmm. right no one's sticking anything up any cavities or anything like that just saying yeah. hey can you just read into the tube yeah and that's something you can easily do and doesn't really take much of, of your day okay maybe you cannot eat i don't know mint chewing gum or smoke cigarettes for for that day but it's not the end of the world right it's pretty easy test to do yeah exactly no, I think the future is bright. And it's fascinating when, when we got started in, in the conversation, because um, I was always thinking about, you always read these news about like dogs that mm. were, you know, sniffing someone and started leaking and it turned out to be skin, skin, skin cancer, right? But then the amount of data a dog normally gathers compared to ours is absolutely crazy, right? Um, so having a machine that can measure that is really, really cool. I mean, I, I love dogs. And I'm amazed with what they can do. But the problem with dogs is they don't scale. They're super expensive to train. It takes a long time. You need a handler. Uh, people are afraid of dogs. People have allergies. You're not going to see a dog sitting next to each doctor smelling for like certain diseases, right? And, yeah, uh, and then and they're not explainable. Right? They will just bark or something like this. And, and you don't really know what, what they discover. Right? Yeah, it, it might work, you know, in the odd the tabloid newspaper, but it doesn't really work in real yeah. life. And uh, to your very good point on uh, on uh, serendipitous discoveries, so what happens now is suddenly really, really renowned researchers come up to me and they say, uh, hey, I have this idea, we could maybe use this for disease X. Honestly, I have no idea if it works. I even have doubts if it works, but if it does, the impact would be so tremendous that I just have to try it. Yeah. And and so I'm I'm basically now sometimes I'm just saying okay let's create let, let's we have a workflow you tell me what you want to find out we discover which biomarkers might make sense then we can tailor make a, a device and, and you go out there and you do your research and we see what happens um, and and kind of like in a crowd knowledge kind of strategy whatever your ecosystem whatever you want to call it. Um, and I don't know what's going to come out of it, but um, I'm, I'm very, very excited that these things are happening. And I didn't ask for it, right? It just naturally suddenly occurs. But it does, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, we were talking about H. pylori and how you can test it from a breath test. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more diseases you can test from a breath test. They normally take forever to, to test. I was just reading on, uh, watching this silly YouTube, uh, remember Jackass that show on, on MTV <laughs> where the guys were doing stunts, right? And there was this crazy guy, Steve-O, um, and he was saying he had this bacteria in his mouth, which gave him constant bad breath. And there was nothing he can do. It was just it was this chronic bacteria he had, right? Obviously, you can smell his bad breath, so it kind of became a thing. However, being able to actually measure what causes certain smells in someone's breath or if there's a disease attached to it, it's it's super powerful, right? And that's actually, I'm pretty sure a lot of companies were willing to pay for that. And I'm myself as a patient, potential patient for, for everything, right? I, I would I would want to do that. Instead of doing super invasive tests, but yeah, I think I think the future is bright. I certainly hope it is. I certainly hope to you know go to the doctors in the future and yeah. can you, you know, breathe into this tube and see what happens. Yeah, I'm. I really hope that too. Like uh, a lot of challenges, but mm -hmm. that's what I kind of visualize seeing it on people's desk, and and that's the beauty I think of. I mean, I was mostly in the digital space. I have a. I've created a card game on the side. 
uh, just mm -hmm. as a fun project. And it <laughs> sometimes gave me more joy than anything else just because it's like a physical product and people are touching it. It lives with them in their homes and being used. And that's extremely gratifying. Uh, so I think that's also why now I'm excited to do something that is that has at least partially a hardware component. Um, um, so if, so people, people who are interested in potentially investing with you, can you tell us a bit more like how much you're raising, uh, yeah. what series you're in, um, and then um, we normally like to end the podcast with uh, contact details. So if you want to share those contact details for people to say, hey, you know, I want to reach yeah. out. Oh, nice. How can you do that? I mean... Um, uh we are raising uh on a on a very exciting uh new development that one i'm if it was just me i would be happy to share it but it involves some other parties so um i, I can't fully i hope in a few weeks i can um but there there's going to be a big leap forward um and we're probably going to reach first customers um signed at least uh with a pretty large project um, so a couple of really exciting things that happen that will require more capital. Um, it's in the single digits in the millions in euros. Um, we have uh, quite some money soft committed already, which is also cool. And um, could use of one to two more million easily. Um, preferably, well, I mean, people who are passionate, people have to understand that this is a longer game. So it's not something where I can promise like this hockey stick coming up right away and then there's the exit in, in three to four years. It's probably be a longer journey. Uh, the, the positive side of that is it's also going to be very impactful if we get it right. I mean, yeah. Harry, uh, I'm only talking about MedTech right now, but we also are looking into biogas, data-driven biogas. There's There are studies that suggest that you could have 20% more efficiency uh, we're talking to car manufacturers, uh, and that's only the beginning of that. Of course, we have to be focused, but the, the upside can get pretty wild. Um, and and another aspect is we have really, really cool investors. Uh, if the, the fortunate part, if you're in this field, you get people that um, are very passionate and they don't need necessarily money. They, of course, want to do things that they're not want to, they don't want to build a church uh, and they look at the economics as well, but primarily they're driven by doing something that really, you know, leaves a lasting impact on the world. And so they'd be joining a nice league of really interesting people. Um, you talk about that guy who's trying to live forever. He keeps on showing up on my TikTok, Ryan something. Yeah. Right? He's all, he's all about medical innovation. Yeah. Yeah, it, it just attracts interesting people. I mean, this is, if I mean, if there's one thing that I would particularly like to single out in all of this journey, it's the people that allowed me to get close to and spend a lot of time with. And I didn't imagine that before I started, but it's really, really, really great. Um, how to reach out. Uh, LinkedIn could be one. So it's Sven Jungmann. J-U-N-G-M-A. Jungmann with the J, right? Because yeah. you're German. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Very important to mention that. And Sven is S-V-E-N. Um, and, or they can just reach me at Sven at Halitos. So that's Sierra Victor Echo November at uh, Hotel Alpha Lima India Tango Uniform Sierra dot India Oscar. Perfect. Um, Sven, thank you so much for your time. It's been super nice. Uh, we hope to see your device or this idea actually materialize in a, in a doctor close to us soon. If all goes well. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the FaceTime and uh, also to you a lot of success. I love your podcast, what you're doing. I think the mission is oh, thank you. really important and meaningful.